Physical Distance podcast series, produced as a part of Meeting Artists' Needs, a professional development program for artists of all ages and backgrounds. QArt Foundation's Meeting Artists' Needs program is generously supported by the Joan Mitchell Foundation. You are listening to Conversation 4, Put Money Where Your Art Is, from Make Some Place, conversations about people, practice, and creative placemaking. This conversation was recorded live at the Bronx Museum of the Arts and was produced by Q's 2016 Public Programming Fellows, Perrin Lipoilo-Canwala and Jordan Danuski. It features guest speakers Javier Torres, Director of National Grant Making for Art Place America, and Kehan Irani, an Emmy Award-winning writer, producer, and Theatre of the Oppressed trainer whose art and storytelling work addresses issues of social justice. Javier begins the conversation. Beyond that, I could share, there's a project I recently got to see this summer um, in Minneapolis. A small, small theater company found a single individual artist um, who was really interested at first at immigrant integration um, and then realized there was, a, there was a very separate public health issue that was happening. So in, Minneapolis, in parts of Minneapolis, there's a huge East African community, mostly Somali. Um, and uh, they were having a very hard time accessing public health services, and the local community centers were having a very hard time providing preventative health services. So as an example, one of the things that they were trying to tackle is that this particular zip code has an alarmingly high rate of births with fetal alcohol syndrome. But if you're Muslim, you don't drink. It's legal to drink. So clearly, as a, a healthcare provider, I'm just gonna tell you, oh, you shouldn't drink while you're pregnant, and your response would be, but I don't, I'm Muslim. And so there are subculture issues that need to be dealt with that need to be done in a, re- in a sort of very gentle and relevant way. And so similarly, this artist is deploying theater and storytelling to support individuals whose primary language is in English, whose cultural norms and, and religious norms are different than the traditional standard um, as, as in the way that the public health system is designed to meet their needs, and working with those practitioners to understand how they might use storytelling to talk about a third person who might have had an issue like that and how they avoided it okay. in order to specifically look at how they reduce things like births with fetal alcohol syndrome in the zip code. Um, and so I think this, the same thing would be useful for you as you think about your, the opportunity with mental health. You can look at indicators for a zip code, for a neighborhood, for a region, or for a city, mm-hmm. and think about what could you bite off, what could you tackle, and who are the right um, uh, mental health providers that you might be able to work with to help you figure that out, because you don't have to be the expert in mental health in order to do this. Thank you can find others that can give you that information. What was the Robert what foundation? Robert Wood Johnson. Johnson. Um, Leora, one of the places that I would send you to as a case study um, is to look at the work that happened in Boston with an organization called Advestors. Advestors started about nine or ten years ago as an experiment because arts education was being cut from public school systems and was trying to figure out how do we improve uh, educational outcomes for young people by maintaining strong out-of-school time youth arts education. That, that uh, huge intervention, which is not what I think you're aiming at, but what they were able to uh, create was a public-private partnership that not only increased arts education in public schools, and they counted that by FTEs over time, full-time equivalents, sorry, employees, um, but then realized that there was a threshold they might not ever get through because of budgeting issues. So what they've started to do is to create an accreditation pipeline that takes what's happening in school and connects it with programs that can be certified to teach accredited arts programs as an extension outside of school to help young people continue their education. And so there are lots of teaching artists that have been able to plug into that system. Um, I don't know if there's an equivalent uh, structure or system in New York City, um, but I'm sure that there are lots of folks that are interested in youth arts education um, and its significance. And it might just take familiarizing yourself with who the players are, looking at a couple of case studies, talking to a couple of schools, um, and making the schools apply for the work, or making the community centers apply for the funds as opposed to you feeling the need to go after them directly. Can I just say, add something to that? Please. I've actually had two nonprofits on the Fireman Executive Director of the Youth Arts Organization, and I have accepted real <coughs> programs in public schools and also charter schools. And just from what you said, my advice to you is that I think you need to have a little bit of 
experience as far as how an organization like mine would operate to make those things happen. And small organizations are always looking for volunteers and also board members. And I always have a very difficult time getting a board secretary, which is a requisite for me to operate a nonprofit, which for somebody like you, if you found a, a young or a small e-commerce organization that did those kind of programs and had for involvement or, or board membership, you would really understand the dynamics where you could actually create your own. Thank you. Noelle? Um, I love the question that you're asking because it's one of the things that I fight with all of my artist friends about is um, know your value and realize that you're still in a capitalist system. So if you think what you deserve is $25 an hour as a random crazy example, then you can't just charge $25 an hour for your work. It means that you need to account for the fact that largely 40 to 50% of what you're making goes away in taxes. You still have to be able to pay rent. You still have to save for retirement. <clears throat> you have to pay for health care. You need to put a little away for your next vacation. Uh, because you need to take care of yourself so that you can continue to do your work. And for those of us that are privileged to have a salary, we usually get salaries that cover all of those real expenses. Um, and so I, my, my colleagues are always surprised when I bring in a, a friend who's an artist to do some work for us, and my base number for anyone is anywhere between $100 and $150 an hour, because I know that ultimately what they're really taking home is maybe 50 bucks, 60 bucks. So some of that is about daily living and covering your expenses, but the rest of it just goes to covering a real infrastructure and a real life that's about sustaining your practice. Um, and so I think as individual artists, it's really important that you figure out what is the, the right math for you um, and know that, that it's important to be clear about the value of your work. Um, for those of you that are mid-career, you should know that your average consultant charges between around $1,500 a day for work. That's an eight-hour day. So to figure out where you are in the continuum of a mid-career consultant and price accordingly. Uh, let's see, who's next? Corporate or business, Roy? I actually wanna ask Emily, if you could just talk a little bit about some of the work that you've been doing in DC um, and where that money's coming from, and I think it would be a really useful example. Uh, so Jordan and I um, are um, in the creative place making realm, I would say. Um, and it started uh, in the work with developers. So um, my background was very appreciated as a dancer and thought I was going to be an architect. Uh, I had all kinds of random like, jobs. Um, but I just couldn't figure out how they were going to put it together. And finally got to a place where I was able to think about being able to create spaces Uh, 
a couple of examples from this summer because they're front of mind for me. Um, the island of Maui is going through a huge economic transition uh, because for the last 200 or so years, their primary economy has been based off of a sugarcane factory. Uh, and they announced in January of this year that they were shutting down at the end of the year. Um, there's an individual artist that is organized with a bunch of community members, businesses, um, and other residents to fight the political will that is happening. So this very, very well-to-do family who owns, I don't know how many right now, how many hundreds of acres of land are saying that they are no longer farmable. And that is because farming doesn't generate the level of profit that they would like if they were to lease or sell the land. They are doing it because what they want is to be able to lease or sell the land for condos and for resorts because then they can walk away and have their, their payday and be happy. In Hawaii? In Maui. Um, so there's a series of multimedia campaigns that this collective is deploying alongside a grassroots political strategy where eight members, eight different people from the different districts in the island of Maui are running for county council. Even if 50% of them win, they will gain control of the county council. The multimedia campaigns are about building the political will around creating a ballot initiative that would permanently preserve these lands as agricultural. And so there are a series of actual installations that will go and there'll be squatters on the, on the land. There will be a series of activations that happen in communities around the land um, in concert with artists and residents who are running for office and then an opportunity to increase registered voters and develop the right language for that preservation to take place over the course of two years. So there are a number of people that are thinking about um, the role that arts and culture plays in building political will and shifting uh, actual policy um, for community benefit. Another example I can give you is the, uh, in Montana for the Gallatin River watershed. It is the headwaters of the headwaters of the headwaters for most of the western hemisphere. Um, and it is surrounding the Bozeman region. Um, Bozeman is a pretty small urban community that is surrounded by just rural farmers. Um, there's, no, there's no suburb in between them. Now, most of the agricultural community has been there for generations. And what happens in Montana is, if you have water rights, your water rights came from the eldest family member who purchased the land. So there are generations of people that have been there that have the right to pull water away from other places because their family has been there for 150 years versus if I bought land from you today, my water rights start today because my lineage isn't there. That's a policy. So um, because of the growth, the population growth for Bozeman as a place that is, uh, has a high quality of life um, and has mostly uh, good um, uh, uh, broadband access, there are a lot of telecommuters that are moving there and being able to have high-tech jobs. And so that population is uh, estimated to grow, to double over the course of the next 10 years. There is no growth plan. There's no land use plan. Um, and so there are actually the, uh, one of the artists is from here, uh, Mary Ellen Strong, who lives in New York City, but uh, her, whose husband is from the Boston region, are working to do a series of really intricate installa uh, video installations, water installations, and land um, activation in order, again, to shift the public will so that they can merge the gap between the urbanites and the rural farmers to get folks to agree that they need to create a smart growth plan for the region so that they're being responsible about their water use long term. Because if they deplete their water reserves there, it will affect everybody all the way down to the Rio Grande Aquifer in New Mexico and in Texas. Um, so just another case of where artists are really thinking critically about how uh, working in a place can shift actual public policy. Those are great examples, thank you. Other questions in the room? I think we got to talk. You know, I had a question, but there's no more questions. Uh, uh, I'm here because I'm a contemporary abstract painter, and I also have a project in the Bronx, and the only way to do it is to do it by the community, and I hope it's something that we're in the Bronx. 
and um, we just want to have Martin and Ken sometimes they get over, over paint and the landlords donate often painting materials and small checks to us to be able to pay for it, so to speak. Um, I kind of like feel that I've become kind of like bronze advocate for arts. Um, uh, but one thing that I've noticed is that platforms are created, except for today, which I see a lot of people turn out. Uh, there was a, uh, what was it, uh, on the 9th, they, they had a meeting, Tom on meeting here, and I was the only artist I showed up. But the funny thing is, you're always hearing about artists, and then you see it on social media, that people bashing uh, the Bronx Museum for not creating opportunities for Bronx artists, but then the opportunity presents itself to make a difference and speak up. There was no one here, and I was going to show it. And someone actually pointed it out to me. I was a journalist from the Bronx Times um, a newspaper. Um, so, my question is you, you know, I've been painting full time now for over three years, and I do very large scale paintings, scale all over more than 72 by 65, 5 feet by 15 feet. And I paint in my garage, and I've outgrown my garage. Um, I have yet to secure an artist residency that I would love to have, and I would like to secure a, a large studio space where I can, you know, like spread my wings and just go big. You know, they, um, so I don't know, you know, where to start. I, I mean, I've uh, applied for the uh, Jackson Highland <coughs> Foundation grant. I didn't hear which one you said. Oh, uh, it's the Jackson Pollock and Lee Krasner Foundation Grant. Yeah. Um, I've already covered my paper and everything for that. So I'm always like staying very active and, you know, filing for like real and all that stuff. But to this day, I haven't gotten anything or won anything. So it's kind of like disconcerting, um, if I have to say it. But the funny thing is that, that I have a gallery that represents my catalog. And I have a former Sotheby's curator came to the house, and she won the 2015 Robert Foundation Record. And she told me, stop taking pictures of your babies, and stop posting them on social media, because every artist is in a trading market, and people with real money don't want to grab out a painting has been plastered and posted all over the place. So the minute I took that advice, I almost started putting up swatches and saying that people had to come to more galleries to either do a scheduled studio visit or get the catalog by email. My painting starts out. But then I feel like, you know, just in the same way that I feel the need to create murals, to beautify the community, to give people in the community a sense of pride and ownership, because I was never taking through museums or galleries when I was working on my parents. So I guess that's why I feel like I want to create that opportunity for all the kids in the community. The same way I think that I should have the opportunity to be in an artist studio so that people could come in, talk with me, and see my style and my technique, and create that dialogue and exchange. And I think in doing so, people will learn to value and appreciate the artist more. Because I think when people buy art, they're actually investing into the artists themselves. You know? Um, so, you know, I mean, I have a lot to offer. I just, you know, as far as like the business aspect, I got a lot of that. You know, I do a lot of film photography, social media, editing, cutting videos. I do a lot of, you know, I don't need to But as far as like getting a studio space or a residency, that's the only <coughs> thing I haven't got around my way. And, like, what would your advice be to kind of like break into that and get into a setting where my paintings are probably huge, but I literally fit on my walls like these. Which is like maybe six or seven pieces in this place where we have like in set. Do you have you applied to so some you said you've applied for the last three years to some places? Yeah, like I, I, I've applied for the real thing like twice. I, I didn't get it um, uh, to the Bronx Council of Arts. Um, I applied, I just finished my application today and my gallerist is reading it over for me just for finalization. But uh, for uh, Jackson Pollock and Crescent Grant. You can ask for the unlimited amount of money. There's no cap to it. 
people only get it once a year and you can't ask them again for the second year. You know, Why would you say they, keep applying? I mean, even twice to apply to something is not a lot. Well, you know, it, it, keep applying. So, like, even you said you applied to Brio twice. That's not a lot to apply, you know, because as, as he was saying, people want to know that you're still working and people want to know, okay, they've seen you, so it's like, oh, that's interesting. We don't know him yet. Will he, you know, continue his see, work if he I, gets a grant? I understand what you're saying, but the dilemma that I'm presented with is the scale of my work is so big that even the money that they award, where they, they tell you that you have to do a one-day pop-up shop, you know, pop-up, you know? Like, for example, here, when I did my application for Rio, um, they said, okay, you might need to secure a space to do a one-day pop-up because that's part of the requirements. Mm. Just to rent the space here, was $3,800, not including, you have to use their technicians or catering services and all that stuff. So the $5,000 that you win is already out the window. So then what money are you going to use to transport the paintings and we're going to pay a hand for you and take you down? So it's like, there are programs out there, but they're just like regurgitating hand-me-down funds that otherwise, you know, if I could get it directly from the source, like, like my after-profit, I would, I've got to do things with my after-profits, and I've taken the in-services, I've sat down in meetings, I've applied for one council awards, grants, for like not-for-profits, and having gotten them, and then the requirement for the Native Department of Cultural Affairs, the red tape is so ridiculous, just for you to get any kind of money. You have to register with agencies, with other agencies, just so they could review your finances and your taxes before they even consider you to yeah. even That's to right. give an option to, to, to get money. You know, so it's kind of like, but, you know, I, I just, just keep pushing forward. I mean, I got turned out for three years, but I'm not turning my hands. And I'm four feet out of my since then, every year since then, go out to the classroom. You know, what I had to build a portfolio to show them that. You know, I'm still going to do it, but we're not. And we were able to produce our first artist item four months ago. Can I ask a question? Yeah. Um, is there, sorry to interrupt you, I just, I'm really curious for the answer. Um, is there an opportunity, for example, using Emily and Jordan's like you're, you're, you move outside of like the grant field, you move outside of like, you, you seems like you're devoted to that community practice that you're doing. Is there an opportunity to partner with somebody who can provide an in-kind, like who can do an exchange? I'll give you space. There's always empty space. In exchange, that you're going to do murals around this neighborhood. See, but that's something that I'm confused about because when I, that's the point. There's two different types of not the profits. Because just two years ago, which I'm going to make three years now, um, there's like that short application where you pay like $4,000. Sure. And by your cap making, you can't make more than $50,000 a year. And then there's another application, which is obviously more money and it's something that what you can make. But then my, my CPA told me that, um, what, what was it that said? No, the, the paperwork. So the attorney that put together the paperwork told me that as a not-for-profit, you know, besides not being able to promote, let's say, political candidates, that you, can hold, you also cannot promote another business. That's not true. That's not true. No. Yeah, you know, so that, and, you know, but people do it all the time. Yeah, no, people do that all the time. So uh, nonprofits get uh, corporate sponsors, um, and even foundations ask for their brand to be splashed on every single page of a playbill. Uh, so that's definitely not the case. I think the the short answer to your question, and I all apologize. I'm not an expert in arts funding because I'm a community development funder. 
Um, and, and for me, it's about figuring out how artists get into those spaces. Um, I think that, you know, you clearly have done your homework about the arts funding that's out there. I would agree with Kehan. Applying three times or two times isn't a lot. We, for example, this year are considering finally funding somebody, not, not that just applied, but they applied and they were named a finalist in our program four times and we still never gave them a dime. <coughs> Um, and so this year, they came back, and I think they actually got it right. So I have my fingers crossed that everything gets approved and we can fund them. Um, so I would say you clearly are well-informed. You have a good team around you. I think you need to keep chugging at it. Um, and I know that your practice is large-scale, and that's part of one of the things that you'll need to be aware of should you choose to continue to work at that scale. Um, and perhaps thinking about how you diversify your work so that you can be eligible for other resources, or how does your practice not get stagnated because you don't have access to space? Um, or just some things for you to think about. And I have to, you know about Figment here and Artomatic based out of Washington, D.C. Um, are kind of large um, scale art installations and they do sort of temporary installations. Those are the groups that would be able to back to one thing someone said about um, receiving funds and dealing with funds mm -hmm. and so um, especially when we're looking at um, creative placemaking and we're looking at um, partnering with a number of different organizations or entities um, even as an individual artist you have to have an MOU for everything create um, a MOU stands for memorandum memorandum of understanding basically a contract you really really no matter how much you love the entity you're working with no matter how many you know like meetings you've had and you've hugged them you know each time like no matter what it will just get you in trouble because once money starts coming in um, it, it's weird everyone is weird with money every institution is weird with money um, you really want to be very clear about structuring like we're gonna do this grant like very like the things that you would think that you wouldn't have to put in a, in a contract you put in the contract um, and you really should protect yourself and your work and a, and a schedule of payment and when you get paid kind of everything mm -hmm. everything and not just deliverables but even like when you get paid how often what's the mechanism think about your intellectual property exactly yeah. you know so if you're doing an arts um, work with them do they own it do you own it who has a right to use it or representations of it in the future in what context you want to be very very clear um, 
uh, because also, you know, again, you're working with entities and you might be close, but you don't know what's going on in the back end. You don't know their books. Um, and I've gotten to situations where I've partnered with organizations that, you know, uh, ideologically, I love them, they were right on, social justice, this, that, the other, but they were a mess, you know, structurally, and I didn't know that, you know, because I'm not in the organization, I don't work for them. And once we started working together, things really fell apart and were very, very hard. And um, because we had a joint grant together, I'm also responsible for deliverables, so I can't be like, well, screw you, you know, you're not doing what you're supposed to do, because um, guess what, if I want to go to that funder again, or again, the like Javier said, the world is very small, they're going to tell someone else, like, oh God, she was a mess, don't deal with her, you know, so then I had to, like, now take on all these things that I never expected to have to take on, um, because the organization really couldn't do it, and we didn't have a clear MOU of who would do what, and how it would be worked out, and when payment would come through and all that stuff. So, you know, so especially when you're looking at these grants and these projects that require you to truly, truly partner um, and to join into goals that someone else is creating or that you're co-creating, you want to be very, very clear still with what's your role, who, what, you know, get the credit that you need, and also just the, the mechanism of how this is all going to work, you know, because you're, you can't just say, oh, sure, you're an organization, you do this, I trust that you'll do this, of course you will. Um, not always the case. Can you recommend any resources to help with drafting an MOU? Oh, there are many online, actually, but um, in fact, their small business services in New York City are, are fantastic, um, and they'll really help you with all sorts of contracts and MOUs. Um, small business services. They're in every single borough. Um, and volunteer lawyers for the arts. Volunteer lawyers for the arts, also. They take a little more time, so if you go through VLA, know that, you know, it takes time. Um, and then online is actually a good resource. You can get sample MOUs and you can look at different uh, memorandums of agreement because anyone, it, it's used in so many different forms. So you can look at arts ones, you can look at business ones, you can look at ones where academic institutions create an MOU. It's just a way to say, I'm an entity, you're an entity. How do we agree to relate to each other and work together for this amount of time? And what's, you know, what's going to guide our relationship? Um, and so it's limited, it lays everything out, and then when it's done, it's done. You, you could also call other organizations that do offer what you're looking for and have them put you through to a representative from the department that specifically handles that and ask them if they're willing to give you free advice over the phone. Because even volunteer lawyers are not there and you can still have to pay something for it. Like with me, I called Philadelphia Mural Arts Project, and I was able to speak to their finance department. They gave me free advice. I spoke to people about MOUs, and I was able to put together a waiver of liability that I had on my artist sign and for building owners. So, you know, you could also find creative ways outside the box to still get what you want for free, but not having to pay for it. You just got to go over your home. I have a question for you, Kehoe. Yeah. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about your, I guess, and we talked about this on the phone a little bit, your funding landscape. It seems like it comes from... It's varied. It's, it's varied. very, very So um, I've got funding from you know, contracts, so going straight out for a job or for a request for a proposal, contractors, vendors, um, from city agencies or just for other, from other NGOs, other um, uh, community-based organizations, nonprofits. I've gotten small grants. Um, um, you know, research and stuff funded. So again, it's also thinking about how do you structure the phases of your work. Um, so sometimes I'll just go for a grant to structure the research phase for me to think about. I have this idea, I have a concept of how the arts could work or an arts piece, and find the places that will fund me just to do the research. You know, and even a Fulbright will fund artists. Mm. So think about it. If your art is 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 um, connected to something that's happening internationally and that you can't research based in New York, a Fulbright funds artists. Um, so you can get a Fulbright to go somewhere and research a certain community or a certain thing. Or you know, I researched textiles in India because the play I was writing had the main characters who did a certain type of embroidery. Um, and that embroidery is not done in America. Did you go to India? Yeah. So you know, the Fulbright um, supported me to live in India for nine months while I researched that. Um, mm -hmm. So you really want to think about, um, you know, just each and every part of your of your project. You know, 
give it the honor it and give it the time and the consideration that it needs. You know, of course, you know, I, I totally understand, you know, our, we're not, we're in a capitalist society. It's not a society that's set up to value art and artists. And so those of us who've dedicated our lives to making art are really marginalized. And that's the truth, you know. And so I understand that urgency. You all feel like, I just have to get it done because this is my life, this is my work. It's only way I can generate money and feel useful <laughs> in this world. But, you know, just slow down and just honor every single piece that you're doing because it is really, really important. And there are ways to get each one funded and all the care that you take to think about that and to make it whole and integral will just add to the next phase and also once you start getting funding for different pieces other funders said oh this one funded you oh you did a kickstarter to get that oh you got this so now the funder sees that you know you have a track record of managing money and doing well and working on a project and so they'll say okay you know, we'll top it off with this. And so that's what I was also able to do. So I would get a little tiny grant um, uh, from, a, like I got a tiny grant from the Asian Women's Giving Circle, which is a, basically just a group of Asian women who give money to arts and culture projects that other Asian women do. And so I got a little grant from them, and then I did a Kickstarter um, to meet you know, the other part of that grant, and then I got that, and then a bigger funder said, oh, okay, you got this and this, and now so our foundation will come in and fund you, you know, kind of triple what, what these two have done, because we can see that you are, number one, sticking to what you're doing, you're accomplishing it, you're working step by step, and you're continuing to grow the money along the way. So really, you want to think strategically about growing your money. It doesn't all have to come from one place. Of course, we, again, you know, the, the urgency of artists and the way we have been under-resourced makes us think like, anywhere there's money, that just has, you know, that just has to be it. But really think about piecing it together like a puzzle. You know, your, your project will come together through different pieces and individuals. You know, maybe there's um, someone you know in your network that has a relative that wants to donate money or has, you know, a kind of personal connection to what you're doing that will just give you um, a check, you know, $1,500. Uh, for a lot of people, that's nothing, you know. And um, being able to really think about who in your network could you ask or target. When I was raising money for another project, I thought it was a project that was dealing with women, and I said, I'm going to target 60 men and say, you know, we need male allies. And so will you, if each of you give this much, we'll have half the funding for our project, you know? And so I, I found 60 men who I thought, you know, had a close relationship with me, had stable, decent jobs that they could give that, and that probably would want to step up in some kind of way, you know? And, and we got more than that because they were touched, you know, and it's not, a, it's not an ask that comes regularly. So also don't underestimate your own networks. You know, yeah, we all think, oh, I'm, everyone I know is broke. And to some degree, sure, everyone feels, <laughs> feels broke. Um, but I think it's the way you approach, you know, sending a blast email that's generic is not going to touch someone. But finding a way, are there, who's in your network and how can you really touch them and bring them in is, um, is also a way to think about it. So really diverse, diverse, diverse. What type of um, like time frames, like lead times for like you know? I know you talked about urgency. So like, how far out should you, you know, if your project is there? How far out should you, like, how much time should you give yourself to like start the researching and applying and waiting to hear back? And like, what type of times have you seen in this type of process? As much as you need. I mean, research can go on for three. Years. I mean, as far as like like money. I mean, like receiving funding. Like, is it like, do you need oh. months and months and months to like reply now? You hear back six months from now? Like, are there yes. averages or the things that you can? I would say it varies yes. broadly. Um, you should plan on waiting at least a year for your money if it's coming through. Mm -hmm. um, and then be happy and surprised when it comes in six or nine months. <laughs> okay. And that's, there's always cheating it because even, again, when you apply for certain grants and say, okay, I'm going to start this work, you know that you're going to have to start a little bit before. So you know some of the work to lay the groundwork or to find the places that you're going to be working in will have to take place before the money comes through. And so, you know, you can, you can put that in a little later, you know, and you can kind of bump it in later on. But, but the, the, the practical work will start before the money comes in. But yeah, you want to wait at least, yeah, nine months to a year. Okay. Um, 
but always again thinking about how how are you still doing your work you know because it's not like well I did that it's out there I'm just going to sit here how do you still connect to other places connect to people connect to um, your own network to just find ways to okay can I both seed money to do one thing so if I can't do all five of those things is there one thing that I can accomplish and how much would that take so I found the small business services to be excellent because for me, I'm not, I'm not really good at organizing my thoughts in very discreet, kind of accomplishable timeline. And so they really help me to figure out like a budget, <laughs> you know, just like, really, what's it going to take? You know, just like Javier said, what, what are all the things you're going to do? And again, as artists, I think we think, well, I'll just do everything and it's okay and I'll take on more work and that's okay and I don't have to pay myself. But actually, if you start to say, this is all the work I do in this realm, that's a whole line of, of money and income that you need to do. And it's, an, it's a job and here's this other line and here's this other line. So again, taking the time to really organize it and, and look and all this amazing work that you do, you know, for little or no money, you know, and make magic um, is very, very useful for your own self-worth, but also very, very useful in terms of thinking about how do you, how do you slot people in, you know, what will people give for? Maybe someone will give for, I'll give money for technical and legal support and advice for you. So great, now you've got that. If you know it's a need that exists and it's a line of work that has to be done. So also, you know, always identify all the lines of work that go into making whatever beautiful thing that you make. said a lot of it and uh, I agree with you that many of the artists that I know will think about oh I want to create this piece I want to create this this phone and if all I need is $50 for the materials and I can make the phone well so great except that it took you five hours to make that phone so if you just ask for the $50 to make the phone you haven't paid for your time and so yeah sure you'll maybe you charge 60 because you're like oh I'll make 10 bucks on this <laughs> Uh, but you still haven't valued your time. And then once you cover your time, and, and quite frankly, I know a lot of people live on very little in this world, and many of us are blessed that we don't have to. Um, but the reality is that even in this day and age, $15 an hour is not a living wage. Um, and so let's just start there. $15 is not a living wage, and know that about yourself. Know that for everybody, whether you're a janitor, whether you're a window washer or a car washer, or whether you're working in fast food, um, it's, it just doesn't, it's not enough. Um, so beyond that, you have to think about how long did it take me to even conceive of this phone in my head? And what value does this phone have for somebody else? And so once you start to add up all of these pieces, you can realize that's one way of approaching how you charge or how you ask for money, whether that's on an hourly or project basis. Beyond that, it might just be, this is the standard of living that I want. And these are the number of projects that I want to do. And, and, I'm, and I'm putting 100 hours or 1,000 hours into each of the projects. So in order for me to make this money every year, I need to break down my real cost. And not just think about how am I paying rent and keeping the lights on, but as, as any institution does, how do you save for retirement? How do you pay for that vacation to Prague? Because these are real human things that everyone needs to consider, and they are the things that will allow you to research, to imagine, um, to reflect, and to continue to create better work. Um, and as human beings, we're all worthy of that, but because of the way that art and artists are marginalized, for some reason we're socialized to believe that those things aren't necessary, that it's the struggle. Um, 
and struggle can create great work. Um, but I've never been mad at somebody who struggled and figured out, you know, how to have own their own home and have a nice yard and be able to put food on the table and travel and still create really, really great work. Um, and all of those things I think are possible and necessary as you build your career. It also, when you come to a funder, at least a funder like me, if artist fees is like the smallest thing because you think you should be nickel and diming yourself in order to get money from us, we wouldn't fund you. Uh, if artist fees are not huge and you're not paying artists yourself and others really well, we, we scratch our heads like, well then what are you doing? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so, and I think a lot of funders, Look at it that way. They're not looking for you to nickel and dime yourself. They're looking at, do you value, do you understand the real value of your work? Um, and are you applying that when you ask us for resources? Thank you. I know, yeah, I know this would suggest that you pay a hundred and, this could be your state council on the arts, suggest that you pay, I think, a hundred and twenty-five an hour for a workshop. So they're expecting you to pay a little more. And again, it's not just the workshop that you're facilitating, it's the prep work and it's the post work. And thinking about things in that way. You know, it takes time, you have to pay for the subway or for the taxi to get to where you're going. And all of that needs to be calculated into the way that you're doing business. Can I ask, did you say 125 an hour? Mm -hmm. It was 100, it might be more now, but this was some years ago, 125 an hour. Thank you. And that's NISPA? NISPA, New York State Council for the Arts. For the arts. Well, one of the things, uh, I'm, my name is Miriam and I'm on the Community Advisory Council. And I came to the workshop to learn a little bit about your funding for a television show that I do here in the Bronx. And, uh, but more importantly, I invited uh, five people here tonight because I, you know, I feel that Bronx artists, they don't get the opportunity. So one of the things that I'm working on, I mean, I've contacted people that I never thought I would speak to on down to people that I didn't even know existed. And one of the things I'm going to do uh, for Bronx artists starting in 2017 is I'm going to continue to give workshops here at the Bronx Museum and other places and inviting people like Ford Motor Company to come and talk about their, their opportunities for artists. They need that ongoing workshop. So I'm in the process of doing that because I have one, two, three very good friends that sometimes as talented as I feel that they are, I'm very passionate about it that they're, they're not getting the exposure that they should. So I'm going to do my, my best to bring these opportunities to them. You know, so. Well, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, I was just wondering, I mean, you talked a little bit about like making yourself a contractor on NYCF and I was wondering if there's also an art house in America talked about these different sectors and I'm really interested in how does an artist go about We definitely don't. It's an individual thing. Um, and so if I were to say, you know, the three things I'm passionate about often are dance music, because they're equal for me, um, food, and being able to enjoy a nice drink with a friend. Um, and so I could say I'm really passionate about ag and food systems and, and, and think about how I might work. Um, so one of the things with the Maui project that I was talking about earlier, um, their goal is to be able to, right now, only 5% of this, the food that, that is served in Maui public schools is grown on the island. And it's in the Pacific. It's a 12-month it's year harvest. Um, so their goal over two years is to increase that to 9%, which is huge. Just as a, a small number, as a small indicator, um, there are lots of other public benefits. But this particular group of leaders were really interested in chipping away at that thing. And so when somebody like Leora is interested in arts education, I typically would drill down to say, well, what are the things that you're passionate about? And how do those things manifest in the world? Um, and you don't need to have a fancy degree or go and do a ton of research. If you're that kind of person, great. 
I'm not that kind of person. And sometimes it's just about an instinct and a relationship and a connection to a place and to a group of people. Um, and holding yourself accountable that you're not parachuting in as you know, a colonial savior. And as long as those relationships exist, then I think that anybody can step into this work. Um, and it doesn't have to be hyper-academic, and we can just have a regular conversation about what you're passionate about and how you're working with your community to address those things. Does that kind of get at your question? Um, so I might even, you know, just the charge I might give you is what really gets you up in the morning, outside of your craft, but like what are the things that either keep you up or get you up in the morning, um, and how might you see your craft in those spaces? Kind of for both of you. So when talking about the We're Near project, you were mentioning like the number of volunteers, the number of the people that went through this program. What were the metrics that you were using to evaluate success of the program? Well, because the program wasn't exactly, we're not teaching English, so that was a very different thing. Uh, and that was why it was uh, considered kind of like a stopgap, you know, people who are on waitlist or who couldn't get to a class or who, you know, this would just be some sort of immersion or some sort of practice. But the metrics really were like, um, number one, how many new groups started in the, in the city, um, how many then um, agree for a second cycle, you know, or more. Um, so looking at were they happy enough that they said this is great. Uh, what was the retention? So we would ask that people sign up at least 20 people at the beginning um, for us to agree that we would send a volunteer and have a course. Um, so how many people ended up staying in that course through the um, 10 weeks that we did it? So really it was just that. Um, we can't, we, because we're not training English teachers, we can't say that they, um, we can't administer tests. It was more about, um, again, English for life. So it was like self-efficacy. Can you know? Can they go about and do things in their life that helps them gain knowledge of the city that they live in, rather than necessarily the specific, um, you know, English goals? Yeah, because I feel like when it comes to arts and culture, and especially with community development, that is a really hard part of the the, the puzzle. Like, how do you evaluate success, and what what kind of metrics do you use to really sell to? city government's foundation, whatever it is, that this is actually causing a social impact in the community. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to add to that. <laughs> um, our next series, speaker series next week, um, is about measuring stick, which is evaluating your work. How do you measure your creative practice um, and what metrics do you use? So certainly invite you to come to that one if you can. Um, but also want to thank both of you for joining us. We're going to wrap this up and let you guys just talk amongst each other and you know connect and, and have more conversations about this. But thank you guys so much for coming. Thanks for coming.